Upon the brand new carpet of my in-law's guest bedroom, there lies a large, fresh, black mascara smudge, which has proven itself to be impenetrable to even the most potent of household cleaners. Three weeks ago, before our last visit, it was just a beautiful brand new carpet. So, what happened? Well, toward the end of nap time, a certain three-year-old who shall remain anonymous <laughs> quietly left her room and walked to the bathroom. And it was at this point that my suspicions were aroused as she was covered quite literally from head to toe in blotches of various kinds of makeup. After an unsuccessful attempt to clean herself, I followed her back to her room where I first encountered a black stain on the carpet. Uh, I expected to find the tools that befit the crime, but there was no bag of makeup to be found anywhere. Uh, it was not uncovered until much later on, uh, deep in a suitcase. After interviewing the only witness, I confess I remain puzzled as to how the stain got on the carpet. She was unaware of how the smudge came to be, or how the blotches appeared, or that there even was makeup in the bathroom. It's just one of life's great mysteries. Now, what I've described for you is one of five ways that I want to go through this morning of how people deny guilt. That's called the cover-up. And when I'm talking about guilt this morning, I'm talking about the state of having broken the law of God. Now, there is such a thing as false guilt, and that's not what I'm addressing today. What I am talking about today is that which comes as a consequence of your sin. Guilt is a painful reality of living in a fallen world. Uh, guilt is something which all of us experience, and yet today guilt is something which we all try to deny. If we do use the concept of guilt, we reserve it for special cases, the kind of cases that make the evening news. Real criminals, those people out there. While I may be imperfect, I'm certainly not guilty, definitely not guilty enough for God to be angry at me for my sin. Guilt is for bad people. I'm a good person. But God's word is clear, and so is our experience. Every person is guilty of sin against God. And if you're honest, you know this to be true as well. And how do I know this? Well, if I were to put on film here today uh, a highlight reel of your worst moments, <laughs> how would you feel about that? I know I would feel guilt and embarrassment and perhaps a, a great deal of shame. And so the question this morning isn't, are we guilty? The question is, what do we do with our guilt? Apart from Christ, there are five major ways in which we wrongly deal with our guilt. And after these, we will consider the one right way that God has provided for us, memorialized here in Psalm 51. So, here are the five ways that we deny our guilt. And I just want to note at the outset that there is considerable overlap between these categories. Uh, the first way we deny guilt is by covering it up. Uh, David tried to cover up his sin with Bathsheba, and that is the occasion for this psalm. You can find the full story in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. I'm just going to briefly hit the 
lowlights of it here. David is not at war with his men. He stayed back. He's um, idle, got time on his hands playing video games, and he goes up to his roof, and he's pacing about at night, and he looks out into the city of Jerusalem and sees a beautiful woman bathing. Because he's king and he can do this sort of thing, he sends men to go get her, knowing that she is the wife of one of his soldiers. Well, what you think happens, happens. She becomes pregnant and sends word to him that she is pregnant. And it's at this point that David, who thought his sin was going to be secret, begins to try and cover up his sin. He sends for Uriah from the battlefield and tries to get him home to be with his wife so that the baby won't be pegged on him. Uh, But Uriah is a loyal soldier, and he will not take any part in domestic pleasures while his brothers on the battlefield are still battling. And so David's left with a dilemma. His first attempt at covering up fails. His second attempt at covering up fails. And so uh, what does he do? Does he come clean? No. He takes it a step further and he sends Uriah to the heaviest part of the fighting. And he has the troops withdraw and Uriah is struck down. And in a sense, David has arranged the death of Uriah. A year passes. David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And Nathan the prophet is sent by God to come and to rebuke David. For a year, David has been living under the assumption that he had covered up his guilt. But Nathan the prophet comes, and in an incredible story, I'd recommend it to you, uh, convinces David to accuse himself. And he says to him, you are that man. And David, upon this rebuke, recognizes his immense guilt. And he pens this psalm. Now, if the first thing you think here is, wow, that's horrible. I would never do that. I just want to remind you that David is described as a man after God's own heart. A man with great deeds of faith and faithfulness. Someone who had endured all kinds of trials and honored God through all kinds of trials. But what we see here is that the very best of men are still men at best. And though he tried to hide his sin, covering up guilt never works. Sin has a way of revealing itself. So that's one way. We try to cover up our sin. Secondly, uh, the second way we deny our guilt is by trying to prove to our guilty consciences how good we are by doing lots of good. It's a kind of works righteousness. And the thought is this, that at the end of my life, my deeds will be weighed on a scale, and it is possible if I do enough good that the good will outweigh the bad, and the good will remove the guilt, and I will be acceptable to God on the basis of what I have done, on the basis of how I assess my own life and deeds. And in this form of denial, it is equally as important to be seen Uh, Not just to see ourselves this way, but to have others see us this way also. And so we find ourselves advertising the good things that we do. Whether it's by posting pictures of our Bible reading or community service to social media or posting a sign for the current popular cultural cause into our front yards. Whatever it is, we need others to see our good deeds and praise us for them. 
course, if it were possible for us to rid ourselves of guilt by our own merits, then there would be no need for a suffering Messiah. Even our best works, apart from the Spirit, are tainted by selfish motives. They are insufficient to remove the stain of sin. So working to make ourselves right accomplishes nothing. So those are the first two. What's the third way we try to deny our guilt? It's by adopting a victimhood mindset. This is becoming more and more popular today. Many people have bought into ideologies today which divide the world into only two types of people, those who are oppressors or those who are victims, and they are such by virtue of their demographic groups. This is not to deny that there are real victims out there, Uh, but many adopt a a victimhood mindset in uh, my view in large part because they're driven by a desire to be rid of the guilt which we all possess. You see, in our day, the only people who are capable of sin and thus capable of guilt are those who are oppressors. And so the logic then is that if I can make myself out to be a member of a victimized and marginalized group, then I don't have to deal with the guilt of my own sin. Because the only people who are capable of sin are those oppressors in this world. And I'm not a member of that group, so I can't be guilty. Best of luck to you if you belong to the wrong group in this system, because there is no hope of justification. The problem, of course, as you know, is that we are all guilty, regardless of which demographic groups we belong to. We all sin, and we're all responsible to God for our own lives and decisions. The fourth way we seek to deny guilt is by attacking the root cause of guilt, which is sin. This is also increasingly popular. What we do is we redefine sin and make it out not to be sin. And then we find as many voices as possible and make sure that they are affirming to us our action. Uh, Truth ceases to matter, and the only thing that matters is that I find people who tell me what I want so desperately to hear, that my sin is actually not sin. And rather than repent, I should actually be celebrating my sin. Anyone with the audacity to suggest otherwise should be silenced. Of course, any student of history knows that just because something is popular doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. God's standards are not subject to human opinion or human affirmation. We may find that the world will help us ignore our sin and guilt, but the world can't take away our guilt. Well, the final way that we deny our guilt is simply to stop caring. There comes a point in life where the conscience has been suppressed for so long and God's righteousness has been rejected for so long that a person can simply just stop caring about God's righteous decrees. This person has lost the fear of God and is convinced with a seared conscience that there are no consequences for their actions in life. So, these are five ways that we deny our guilt. I'm sure I missed a category in there somewhere. While each of these five forms of denial may be satisfying for a person or to those around them, each one of them fails because none of them actually address the problem of a person's status before God. They each fail to deal with our guilt. 
The good news, though, is that Psalm 51 shows for us the only real solution to our guilt. Unless you think the, uh, your guilt is too great for the blood of Christ to cover, I'll simply remind you of the occasion of this psalm, David's adultery and murder. So, as we're preparing to read this, we remember that this is roughly a year after, his, after he called for Bathsheba. He's already been rebuked by Nathan, and upon recognizing that Nathan was correct in rebuking him, he pens this psalm. And as we will see here, freedom from guilt, call this the guilt-free life, uh, freedom from guilt comes not from denying or suppressing it, but actually, freedom from guilt comes from owning it and repenting. So pick up with me in verse 1 of Psalm 51. I know, would you turn me down just slightly? I don't like to hear me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are not a vindictive God, but you are a forgiving God. That you are kind and compassionate, gracious and loving, showing compassion to all who come to you. Lord, we just praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your mercy. And I ask this morning, Lord, that you would empower me by your spirit, by your power alone, to preach the truth of your word. And prepare our hearts this morning, Lord, to receive your word and to be encouraged. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first correct way to deal with sin we see in these first six verses uh, is to own it and seek mercy. I like to think that I'm somewhat of an expert and repentance. David was an expert in repentance. It's kind of a backhanded compliment. Uh, the expert in repentance must also be an expert in sinning. Uh, this psalm we have this morning is a 3,000-year-old masterclass in repentance. And you, as well as 3,000 years of believers, can come to it and recognize for yourself in it a template for your own repentance. Now, when we come to the topic of repentance, you can say, yes, pastor, I did that when I became a Christian. Well, I hope that's the case. But the fact is that we never outgrow the need for repentance. Because until we go to be with Christ, we will never entirely outgrow our sin. You become a Christian through repentance, and you also live as a Christian through repentance. I'll note here that David has been a believer for a long time. And so what does this person do when faced with the gravity of his guilt in these first six verses? Does David remind God of all of his good deeds in the past? And David has some things to brag about. Uh, does he blame shift to Bathsheba? Does he minimize his role or make excuses? Does David try to cast himself as the victim in this situation? None of it. 
The time for denying his guilt has passed, and he does two things here. He owns his sin, and he appeals to God for mercy. So we'll start with the appeal, because that's what we see in verses 1 to 2. He says, have mercy on me, God. That's God relenting from bringing the destruction that David's sins deserved on him. But it's interesting here, there are two according to's in the text. He says, have mercy on me, what? According to your great compassion and according to your unfailing love. You see, as David is asking for mercy, he recognizes that God doesn't owe him anything. If God is going to forgive David, then it will be according to God's compassion and unfailing love, not because of David's worthiness to receive forgiveness. All of David's remarkable accomplishments cannot undo what he's done here. He recognizes that he needs God to forgive him. It has to be by grace. And so he says that he needs to be washed clean in verse 2 and that he'd be whiter than snow. Uh, This language of washing here is actually the same symbolism that we have in baptism. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from sin. Now, I wonder this morning if you've ever thought about why is it so hard to articulate verses 1 to 2 in our own lives, in our relationship with God? I think it's because it requires us also to own verses Three to six in our own lives. You see, no one seeks forgiveness unless he's convinced that he needs it. No one seeks mercy if she thinks that she's innocent. Why does David call out for God to mercy? Well, you see that word for there in verse three. He's giving the reason that he's calling out. And what is this reason? He says, I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. This is what's incredible here. He's saying, my sin is always before me. Even during this year when he's trying to cover up his guilt and convince everyone around him and himself that he's done nothing wrong, he says, my sin was always before me, no matter how much I tried to cover it up. Well, the second piece of owning your sin we find there in verse 4, it's to recognize against whom you have sinned. David says, against you And you only, God, have I sinned. I want to be clear here. David is aware that he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba. This is hyperbole to make a point. The far greater sin in this case is against God. David is God's anointed king, his firstborn, his servant, his chosen one. David has done what is evil in the sight of God. And if we ourselves have offended a holy God, we will not find reprieve for our guilt-stricken consciences until God's justice has been satisfied and he forgives us. God is aware of every single one of our sins. And every sin is first and foremost a sin against him and secondly, a sin against others. If you want to find peace and forgiveness, you have to find it from God. Okay, so the third piece of owning your sin here is owning the consequences. What does he say uh, there in verse 4? He says, you are right in your verdict. You are justified when you judge. He's saying, 
God, you are right when you judge me. I'm guilty. And I deserve whatever punishment you deem necessary. Uh, Think of the prodigal son who returns to the father. And what does he say to the father? He says, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Uh, Think of the thief on the cross in Luke 23 who turns to the other thief who's been uh, blaspheming Jesus. And he says, what does he say to him? He says, don't you understand We are here on the cross because this is what our deeds deserve. This Christ has done nothing. Just remember me, Christ. He turns and asks for mercy. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We see here that neither David nor the prodigal son nor the thief on the cross thought that God owed them anything other than his just wrath for sin. And those who do not Uh, The only way to God, the only way to be rid of your guilt is through the cross of Christ. And those who reject the cross cannot come to God and be absolved of their guilt. It's a cycle of denial. Now, before moving on, I just want to ask you this. What does your repentance look like before God? What does your repentance look like to others against whom you've sinned? Do you own your guilt without qualification? Uh, Do you ask for forgiveness or do you blame your parents or your spouse or your kids or the system? Are you still trying to find ways to avoid personal responsibility? I just want to show you one last thing. Look at these first six verses. Look at all the first person pronouns here in the first six verses. Have mercy on me. Uh, Blot out my transgressions. Watch away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You just see over and over again, David is pointing the finger on me, saying, God, you're righteous when you judge me. Well, in verses 5 and 6, we uh, are uncovering simply what we talked about in Ephesians 2. Now, because of sin, we are all born into this world with corrupted uh, natures bound to sin. That there's not a person alive who does not need God's grace. Uh, You see, David could have avoided this entire Bathsheba episode, and he still would have needed forgiveness to avoid God's judgment. God demands faithfulness from the womb, and we are incapable of giving it on our own. We need a Savior. But God has provided a savior. And that brings us to our next point. This is to pursue the righteousness and holiness of Christ. Pick up with me in verse 7 of Psalm 51. He says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Uh, There's a scene in Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, I'd recommend it and that you read it to your children. It's a great book. But, but in this story, there's a scene where Christian has already come to recognize that he's a sinner. Uh, his guilt has been portrayed as a, a big burden, a heavy pack on his back, which is 
constantly weighing him down. And the, the big question in the first few chapters of the book for Christian is, what do I do with my guilt? How can I be free of the burden of my guilt, which is weighing me down? And so in the fourth section of the book, he comes along, as he's traveling down the path, he comes to a cross. You can probably guess what that represents. And <laughs> thank you, David. <laughs> the straps of his burden snap, and the burden rolls off of Christian and into a dark tomb, never to be seen again. And Christian, when this happens, it says he's filled with joy, and he, and he shouts out, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life from his death. Christian had been freed from the burden of guilt. David, in his conversation with Nathan the prophet, would have felt the same burden. I mean, he even takes it to the next level and he says, my bones are being crushed in verse 8. You see, the hand of God was heavy upon him. His guilt was weighing him down. He was no longer capable of experiencing real joy or gladness. He was constantly haunted by what he had done. And yet, David knows the character of God. That he's kind and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He knows that God can wash him whiter than snow, that God would be pleased to purify him. Just consider that imagery of snow. Can you think of anything whiter and purer than snow? I, mean, I think about the last big storm we had, and you know, our, our cars were covered under a foot of this pure white powder, and I thought it was so beautiful and pure until I had to start shoveling. <laughs> but, but it's you know, it's incredible. We actually went out and um, Actually, at Maddie's recommendation, if those of you who remember Maddie, and we got a bunch of snow and made ice cream out of it because it's so pure. Anyway, David is saying that God's forgiveness is taking those of us who are guilty and stained and washing us and making us whiter than this beautiful white powder. And he gives us uh, another image right here in verse Seven. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Uh, hyssop was used in purification rituals under the law. Uh, at the time of the Passover, you may not know this, um, as the children of Israel were told to sacrifice a lamb and they were painting its blood on the door frames of their homes. You, you see, God was bringing judgment against Egypt and when his angels saw how the blood was covering this house, the angel of the Lord would pass over and the inhabitants of the home would be spared. But if you go back and you read Exodus, you find that actually the blood of the lamb which spared the Israelites was painted with hyssop. If we're willing to open our eyes, we'll see that there are all sorts of hints that the Old Testament is giving us to point us forward to Christ who is the ultimate Passover lamb. How is it that God can justify a man like David? How is it that God can justify a man like me? It's by covering sin with the blood of the lamb, of the Passover lamb. And there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all 
their guilty stains. David spoke better than he knew. With the added perspective of the New Testament, we can see that God forgave David the same way that he does for us. He covers our sins with the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, we try to cover our sins, but God actually covers our sins. He will forgive you and make you righteous in Christ if you will turn as David did and ask for it. If you, like Christian, are bearing that burden of guilt in your life, Christ is willing to bear the burden for you. Well, in verses 10 to 12, as we continue, we are reminded of the nature of sin, uh, namely that no one ever forces us to sin. We do it because we want to, because we believe it will bring us pleasure. And so as we've already discussed that Christ can save us from the guilt of sin, here in verses 10 to 12, we see that his spirit can save us from the power of sin. So look at verses 10 to 12 one more time with me. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David realizes that his problem is his heart. He loves the wrong things. He's given his heart to lesser sinful pleasures. Uh, To steal from C.S. Lewis's famous quote, he's making mud pies in the slum because he can't even imagine how much better a beach vacation would be. And so what you see here in verses 10 to 12, David's prayer is not so much that God would give him a renewed self-discipline to resist the things that he really wants to do. That's not his prayer here. Rather, he's praying that God would give him a pure heart, that he would love the things that God loves. He's asking God to change him at the level of desire, to open his heart and mind to see what truly brings joy. The beach vacation is objectively better than making mud pies in a slum. But until God takes us to the spiritual ocean to see that for ourselves, we're going to continue choosing to sin with our mud pies. We will continue doing it because we think it's fun. And so we see that repentance is not just accepting the blood of Christ which covers your guilt. It's seeking the spirit of Christ which purifies your hearts and gives you new loves. And I can tell you over the last couple months, I've spoken to a number of you who have testified that as you have beheld Christ, as you have learned to trust in Christ, that you have seen him working on your heart at the level of desire and actually changing your desires to love the kind of things that God loves. And it's such an encouraging thing to think about. Now, before we move on, I just want to comment on verse 10 because you see there, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David needs his joy restored. He's been a believer. We need God to change our hearts, but that's a need which persists, a constant growing in Christ-likeness. 
The New Testament clearly teaches that once we've been united to Christ by faith, once we've been justified, that the rest of our lives until glory is a process of God taking us and conforming us to the image of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. In other words, God is taking us like this, and he's making us more and more like Jesus. So we have this ongoing need for renewal. If you're here this morning and you are struggling with sin, I would encourage you to pray desperately for sanctification, as David does. As Christians, the longer we are Christians, our natural inclination is to start taking credit for it. Uh, to start thinking that we can walk God's path in our own power. But what if it's God's kindness to you to allow you to fall flat on your face, to remind you of how desperately you need him? Well, our final point this morning moves us from dealing with our guilt to the proper response to God's grace in our lives. So let's read our final verses as we consider how we can savor his grace and worship. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole then bulls will be offered on your altar. One day Jesus was dining in the house of a Pharisee and a well-known sinful woman comes into the house and she begins weeping and cleaning his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair and pouring an incredibly expensive perfume upon his feet as she anointed him before his burial. And as she was doing this, uh, the Pharisees who were there were disgusted. And they used the opportunity to question Jesus' authority because surely if he knew what kind of woman she was, he would not have let this take place. But Jesus, in his response, laid out a very convicting and important principle. And it was this, that those who have been forgiven of little love little. And those who have been forgiven of much, love much. You see, this woman had been forgiven of a lot, and she loved Jesus a lot. The Pharisees were still in denial about their sin and guilt, and so ultimately they rejected the one who could deal with it, and thus rejected the only one who could save them. David here, as flawed as wicked as his actions were, <laughs> David was a man who loved God much. And he recognized that the proper response to experiencing such great forgiveness was to praise the compassionate God who forgave him. Those who receive grace ought to be the most gracious. Those who are forgiven ought to be the most forgiving 
And David here has a remarkable opportunity to point others around him still dealing with the guilt and corruption of sin to the God who can forgive and make new. He says, I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners turn back to you. So, as we close today, we'll pull out three ways from these last verses that we can savor God's grace and worship. The first is by telling others what Christ has done for you. Uh, this is evangelism. Spurgeon so eloquently described evangelism as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Uh, it's going to those who are still trapped in sin and giving them the opportunity to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all have that opportunity to go to our friends and our family and our neighbors and to tell them about the joy that comes from knowing Christ. The second way we can savor his grace is through worshiping him. What better way to respond to his love than to gather and praise him with others who have also been saved by his grace? David here says this, Deliver me and I will sing. Open my lips and I will declare your praise. Brothers and sisters, there's a very real sense in which every Sunday in which we're gathering, we're gathering to celebrate We're gathering to celebrate the grace of God poured out in our lives. And I would encourage you this week, as we prepare to take communion, to just consider the symbolism and the significance of it. Christ's body was pierced and his blood was shed so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to our Father. Even as we're celebrating his grace in communion, we are remembering the steep cost to purchase that grace. The last way we savor his grace is by living humble and repentant lives. David said, you do not desire sacrifice, or I would bring it. He says, you don't, you don't want burnt offerings, or I would offer them. It's a final reminder that there is nothing which we can offer God which will take away our guilt. Not our deeds, not our money. There's nothing. If we are to approach the Almighty, we can only do it on His terms. And that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb ought to have humble and contrite hearts before God and others. God's grace should completely undercut your pride. Because if we're saved entirely by grace, then that means we have no ground to stand on. I think that's why Paul says that I boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest on me. Sin and guilt are a painful reality of living in a fallen world. The temptation to deny or cover up our guilt, to make ourselves look righteous in the sight of others, that temptation is always there. But relief, joy, forgiveness, righteousness, sanctification, eternal life, that all comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's savor his grace together as we prepare to approach his table. Let's pray.